Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today's show, I would like to thank ARS Pharmaceuticals for their very kind support of FACT's Roundtable podcast. The FDA's 2022 food code has been published and it's already in use, but do you know what the food code is and how does it impact people living with food allergies? Sitting at FACT's Roundtable today is Jen Jobrak, founder of Food Allergy Pros, who will break down the food code and what this means to you and your family. Welcome to FACT's Roundtable, Jen. I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted you are here to help us understand the 2022 food code. And you're just this fabulous person who I love to talk to. Well, Caroline, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Well, again, we thank you for your time. But before we jump into our conversation, if you don't mind introducing yourself to our listeners, because you have a very impressive background in this food allergy community, and if you don't mind letting them know as well what your role is today. Thank you. So like many people who work in the food allergy world, I started on a personal journey when my now 18-year-old son was diagnosed with a peanut allergy at the age of 14 months. And um, some time after that, I had the opportunity to join the staff of a national food allergy organization, first running its operations uh, in the Chicago area, and then eventually running uh, government affairs and advocacy. And during that time, I was working in that organization for about a decade, we successfully moved 100 pieces of legislation related to food allergy, quality of life, safety, and inclusion. So specifically, that meant a lot of work on access to epinephrine auto-injectors in schools and in other public places. It meant laws that require restaurant personnel to be trained in food allergies and preventing allergen cross-contact. There was work with emergency medical services, with uh, other industries that serve people with food allergies. And then relevant to this conversation, a fair bit of work with the Food and Drug Administration and other federal agencies on food labeling or allergens. Work with the Food and Drug Administration on food labeling, specifically allergen labeling, which brings us to the conversation we will have today about the food code. I went on my own. Uh, as a consultant in the food allergy world in 2019, I launched Food Allergy Pros, which is a Chicago-based national consulting practice that works with schools, camps, daycares, restaurants, pharmaceutical industry, pretty much anyone who has food allergy families in their constituency, which these days is practically everyone. People contact me when they need help creating or 
refining their practices related to food allergy care in, in their settings, emergency preparedness, what they can and cannot do from a legal perspective. It's just really wonderful to work with a huge variety of organizations, many of whom think they have their food allergy policies down pat. And unfortunately, then when they have a crisis, that's when they realize they need to fine tune things. And that's when I get the call. I'd like to get the call before the crisis happens, but I think sometimes that's uh, the way it works. Well, personally, I am absolutely grateful for all the work you've done. And listeners, as you tool through life and their regulations and policy and things out there, I will guarantee that Jen's had probably a little bit of influence on that, if not a lot. And this kind of information is needed. So thank you again for your past work and then for what you're doing now. Well, it's a labor of love, as you well know, Caroline. We come to this come to this family of food allergy people, perhaps reluctantly and with some fear early on. And if you're lucky enough to do what you do and you've had an enormous impact in our community, turn that into something that helps other people. It makes the diagnosis and the pain of living with food allergies just a little bit easier to know that you're doing something. That is so well said. That describes it right there. So thank you. Let's jump right into our conversation now, Jen. So the FDA states on their website, the food code is a model for safeguarding public health and ensuring food is unadulterated and honestly presented when offered to the consumer. So can you break this down in just real commonly terms for us to help us understand what exactly is the food code? Caroline, that is a very good question and a good place for us to start. The first ever version of the Food and Drug Administration's Food Code was published in 1993. And since then, it has been revised every couple of years. It was first developed by the Food and Drug Administration with input from many different stakeholders, people from different levels of government, like public health directors in states and counties, consumer organizations, industry, specifically food industry, and related allied professionals. The food code is intended to govern the preparation of food in this country for immediate consumption, sort of non-packaged foods. So unlike the cookies you might find in a box on the grocery store shelf, we're really talking about food that is made either made on site for you to eat right away, like at a restaurant, or food that is non-packaged previously, like a cookie you might find in the deli counter at the, I'm sorry, in the bakery counter at a grocery store, or the chicken salad you might find in the deli counter. So the food code really governs this world of uh, non-packaged foods. It was established to be a compendium, kind of an all-in-one all resource on food safety. So that's things like the proper refrigeration or cooking temperature, sanitation and hygiene, how to prevent insect, um, a rodent infestation, or when to wear a hairnet or gloves when you're pre preparing something, uh, how hot your dishwater has to be when you run your dishwasher, Things like that that are really about keeping bacteria, pathogens, 
and other harmful things out of your food. And it's been very successful. Our food in this country is overall very safe. Allergens had not previously been addressed until fairly recently. I'd say within the last, you know, uh, two or three versions of the food code is when we really started seeing a recognition of food allergens as a public health and food safety issue. So we first started seeing a few years back the inclusion of techniques to minimize allergen cross-contact in food preparation, guidance uh, on that issue. But it's important to remember that the food code is guidance. It's not statute. It's not law. It is best practice and regulation pertaining to the creation and sale of safe food. And every state takes that USDA version of the food code and decides whether or not to adopt it. As I mentioned, the food code was first promulgated by the FDA in 1993, updated every couple of years. Every state has a choice of which version of the food code they want to use and how often to adopt it. We know that, for instance, South Dakota has is still working from the 1996 version of the food code, whereas the 2022 version of the food code, which just uh, was released last late last year, you've already got two states, Mississippi and Pennsylvania, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands as territory already already using the 2022 food code. And most states are somewhere in between. So the states have the ability to adopt a version of the food code. They also have the flexibility to adopt, to omit certain components of the food code. So just because a state has adopted a food code doesn't mean it uses or uh, enforces all of its planks. But overall, this has created a framework for food to be safely provided everywhere in the U.S. The food code sounds very complicated, but very, very important. So how many different agencies get involved in creating it? Like, is it just one department or are they pulling in the restaurants and the grocery stores and, and all these different people? So there's an organization called the Conference for Food Protection, which I had the privilege of sitting on for several years as a food allergy consumer representative. The Conference for Food Protection advises the Food and Drug Administration on changes to the food code, and they meet separate and apart from the FDA. There are FDA representatives on that body, but so too are people in public health at the state level, at the county level. There are industry representatives from from grocery and, and, and restaurant industries. There are consumer groups that, are, that care about food safety and foodborne illness. There are academics, researchers, and certainly the process is intended to provide input from a lot of different stakeholders who care about these issues. Once the food code is adopted by a state, then there are different agencies involved in its dissemination and its enforcement. In some states, there can be three separate agencies involved in regulating its food code. In Florida, for instance, there are three different state agencies that have a hand 
in implementing the food code. In other states or territories, it may just be one agency, like a Department of Public Health or a Department of Agriculture in some instances. It really depends. And there's a resource that will be available on, that is available online that tells you which which agencies in your state are active in enforcing and implementing the food code. Thank you for bringing such clarity because it is so complicated. It is very complicated. And what we didn't even talk about today is what's happening internationally on this issue, because it's not just the U.S. working in a vacuum. There are other bodies internationally that convene for purposes of promulgating best practices in food safety and specifically for our listeners and allergens that affects food that's imported that affects food when you when you travel internationally that affects the conversations that happen here among among uh, public health officials so it is quite complex i think the bottom line is that there is a movement towards greater transparency and thoroughness in allergen labeling. And it may take more time, but it is happening. And it can happen perhaps in a more accelerated fashion if people who care about this issue let their public health uh, leaders in their communities know that it matters to them, They that they ask, questions when they dine out or when they go to the grocery store, that we not be afraid to say we care about knowing what's in this food. We care about allergen uh, statements and statements of ingredients. And we want, we, we expect that information to be provided. And it may not happen right away, but over over time, it's definitely improving. This is some really important advice. It's really actionable. I mean, I just got inspired right there when you were, you know, saying, let these people know this is really important to us. Let the manager know of the establishment. Maybe reach out to the chain itself and say, this is really important to me. Phenomenal information. I really appreciate it. So now let's get selfish here and focus on people with food allergies. So now how is this food code directly impacting our community? So as I mentioned, when the food code uh, was created by the Food and Drug Administration, and I believe it was 1993, the text did not really discuss allergens at all. They were not recognized as a food safety hazard the way that some of these other issues we're talking about are. But with the growing body of evidence about prevalence and severity, it became apparent that that it had to be addressed. So over time, different elements of food allergies have crept their way into the food code, mostly pertaining to preventing allergen cross-contact in the kitchen, in the work environment, keeping unintended allergens out of a food. How does that happen? What are the protocols for that? That could be how allergens are stored in a pantry or in a refrigerator. That could be uh, what utensils and appliances and griddles and so forth are used to cook an allergen versus to cook a, another food. But what happened in 2022, which I think is, is very interesting, has to do with con- what, what the consumer experiences when he or she goes to purchase food. And again, we're talking about the restaurant experience or the in-grocery store experience. Let's say an example I use often is a deli counter inside a grocery store or a bakery counter inside a grocery store. 
previously, when you go to those stores, go to those counters, you may order a food, uh, you may see deli meats displayed or cheeses displayed in a deli counter, and there's often no allergen information available to you uh, on, on site. It might be available if you ask. It may be printed on the label when you order it. It may not. Uh, it's not, hasn't been required. What the food code will do in states that adopt the 2022 food code is say that allergens need to be displayed and declared. And what does that mean? It means that, let's say, if you're in a that deli counter, in that in-store bakery, or even at a restaurant, there needs to be allergen disclosure. It can be in the form of a placard or a sticker or a binder or available upon request, but it has to be in writing. It, can, it can't just be handled orally, verbally. It has to be, just like any other ingredient labeling, accurate, thorough, complete, and in easy-to-understand words. This is groundbreaking for us. The Many of your listeners will know about the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act of 2004, which we, uh, the mouthful is FALCBA. FALCBA has governed the labeling of grocery store items, things you find on the shelf or in the freezer section, but it, it has not governed uh, what we call sort of ready-to-eat foods, foods that are prepared for immediate consumption, non-packaged goods really is another way to look at it. It does not govern non-packaged goods. So there's been this huge category in the grocery store, not, let alone restaurants or cafeterias, that have not been subject to any allergen labeling from the federal government's perspective. Let me reiterate, this is not a requirement. This is unlike FALCBA, this is not a law. This is a best practice regulatory framework. So what that means is that if a state adopts the 2022 food code and includes all of its planks, including these pieces about allergen labeling, they will then be compelled to require the entities that would be subject to this, like grocery stores, to label for allergens. And then, to your point earlier, it would fall on county or local officials to enforce that. Now, you can imagine, Caroline, that training the enforcers on this whole new section of the food code, that in and of itself may take some time. There are many excellent people working in the public health space on food safety who may not understand what the allergens are or what to look for in labeling to make sure the labels are thorough or uh, there are other complications to that. So like any regulation that goes into effect or any law, it's going to take a little time for us to start seeing this. But it is really a huge leap forward that from 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 now on, it is because it is unlikely for things to come out of the food code. So one can expect that going forward, as the food code continues to be revised every few years and adopted increasingly by more and more states, you're going to start seeing more disclosure and declaration of allergens in these foods at, at grocery stores, at restaurants, at food trucks, at ice cream parlors and cafeterias, et cetera. 
And that's very exciting. This is absolutely exciting. I mean, absolutely exciting. I remember reading an article that I believe you wrote for Allergic Living talking about the food coat and then mentioning that little boy who I think was in Tennessee who had passed from getting a cookie at the counter. And so this is very exciting. This is going to really impact our community in very, very big ways. And so just on that note, what other ways do you think that this new food code is changing for our community? And then how can our listeners engage with it? Not only, you know, maybe asking a store for more information, because I also believe that this food code is encouraging, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, encouraging also bakeries and other places like that to have maybe a binder with information and so forth. So now how can our listeners engage with this new code if it's active in their state? Yeah, so that's a great question. And unfortunately, yes, you are correct. There was a fatality several years ago at a supermarket where a young boy's caregiver, grandparent, I believe, asked about the presence of an allergen in a bakery item and was told that that item did not contain that allergen. And unfortunately, the information they received verbally was not correct. The changes to the food code that we are discussing, I do not believe are a direct result of that incident, but it it does speak to the importance of things being in writing. Because when they're in writing, usually that means multiple people are checking that and confirming that and everyone has the same information. I want to just comment before I answer your question. It's important to remember that there are some limitations to the food code that are not unfamiliar to your listeners. Currently, just like with the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act, while it governs the inclusion of allergens as intended ingredients, it does not include possibility of allergen cross-contact. So there will be no requirements for may contain or made on shared equipment labels. Those remain, that whole category remains very confusing and difficult for our food allergy community to navigate. It can also make it, make it difficult for food manufacturers to navigate, but that's a conversation for another day. The regulations do not cover that at all. So I want to make that clear. As far as what listeners can do, I think there's a few things. Number one, no one needs a food code to disclose allergens. So ask, always ask. Never shy away from asking, what's in this food? What are the allergens? You're demonstrating that there's a demand for that information. The conversation may not yield the results that you want. You may walk away frustrated, but you're helping advance the dialogue over the long haul. So please always ask. We all know when we go to a deli counter to ask about what slicer is used for the turkey that we're ordering and whether we're avoiding certain, some people avoid, of course, deli counters altogether because the allergen risk is too great. I have empathy for those folks. And unfortunately, the food code is not intended to remove allergens from the facility, right? There'll still be cheese behind that counter, which may not work for you if you if your kid's allergic to milk. But it will disclose that there are what's in the food that you're actually intending to order. The people who decide what version of the food code your state is using are not legislators. They are bureaucrats for the most part, well-meaning, public health officials, directors of food safety some states have. 
It really depends on your state. Some people live in states where the food codes are enforced by the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Public Health. Sometimes they only have one or the other. I've shared with your listeners or with you, Caroline, and I'm sure you'll share with your listeners a map from the Food and Drug Administration of what version of the food code your state is currently using. What version have they adopted? You can pursue what agency in your state oversees that. Give them a call. Find out what the process is to update your state's food code. Who makes that decision? How often do they review this decision, um, et cetera? I mean, just to give you an example, in Florida, there are three different state agencies that oversee its food code. The Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation, they oversee it for restaurants. The Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services and the Florida Department of Health. That's a lot of bureaucracy weighing in on one set of regulations. So, there's the good news is there's lots of places for you to go and talk to people. The bad news is it can be cumbersome and frustrating to try to effect change when there's so many different layers of a- approval involved. But I think that our food allergy f- community is not shy about asking for what it needs. And we've, as we talked about earlier, we've had enormous success on a legislative front on enhancing safety and inclusion efforts. We know that, for instance, the FASTER Act, which went into effect in January of 2023, uh, which labels for sesame, did not come about in a vacuum. It came about because of the activism of many, many people in the food allergy world. So this, too, is a labeling issue which can be hopefully advanced by the good work of the people in our community. I'm also happy to answer any questions at any time. <laughs> but... I think it's about conversation, asking for what you need, holding the grocers and the restaurants where you go to dine accountable, sharing with each other when restaurants do it right and handle it well, and continuing to advance our voices as consumers who expect a level of transparency in the information that we're getting. This is incredible information and incredible tips that I think, again, like you were saying, you know, the FASTER Act and all these other changes we've experienced started with the consumer and started with the advocate by understanding, right, the system and what's going on and then able to dig in. So this information is so powerful. Well, Jen, this has just been phenomenal with amazing information, you breaking down something very complex into bites and segments and descriptions that we can all understand and actually get inspired by. I'm very inspired, which is thrilling to me, but it is time for us to say goodbye. So before we end, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Caroline, I have been very fortunate over my decade or so in the food allergy world professionally to work with some incredible advocates who have moved legislation, regulation, and changed policy, including you, my friend. And I just want to tell the listeners, especially if someone is living with a newly diagnosed family member and feeling a little overwhelmed, it can be overwhelming to get that diagnosis and to figure out how to manage your life. But it can also be very rewarding to take action not only on behalf of your loved one, but perhaps the cause more broadly. So I always encourage people to be an advocate 
And being an advocate can be as simple as getting a 504 plan for your child. It can be talking to your school, talking to your favorite restaurant. Those are all advocacy techniques, right? Talking to people about why food allergies matter to you and why you would like food allergies to matter to them. That's what advocacy is. It doesn't have to be going to Capitol Hill. It doesn't have to be cold calling your state representative. If that makes you nervous, if that makes you happy, do it by all means. But advocacy is often best handled and most effective one to one to one. So I encourage anyone listening who's feeling a little bit of a unsettled feeling about what's happening for them or their family with respect to food allergy accommodation, use your voice. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful words to end by. Thank you again and again, Jen, for your time and your knowledge and your passion and your wisdom. Caroline, always a pleasure. And really, thank you again for inviting me on today. Before we say goodbye today, I just want to take a moment to pause and say thank you to ARS Pharmaceuticals for their kind sponsorship of Facts Roundtable Podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.